This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. France has a new president. Final results from the uh, French presidential election show that uh, the winner, Emmanuel Macron, received 10 million more votes than uh, his far-right rival, Marine Le Pen. I mean, an absolute landslide. The official tally published today by the Interior Ministry shows that Macron collected 20.8 million votes at 66.1%. Le Pen uh, garnering 10.6 million votes. There is an interesting stat. That, that by the way, 33.9%. Here's the interesting stat, one of uh, many in this French presidential election. Le Pen collected just over 10 million votes. There were 12.1 million voters who did not cast ballots. How about that? And here's another interesting stat. A record number of 4 million voters cast blank or spoiled ballots. So they didn't like either of them. They said, to heck with this. We're not choosing any of them. We're going to spoil or just leave a blank ballot. Here to dissect the French election and uh, perhaps what it means for our nation is Kurt Hubner from the Jean Monnet uh, Chair for uh, European Integration and Global Political Economy Institute for European Studies. And uh, he joins us now. Kurt, how are you? I'm good. Morning. Morning. Uh, well, uh, well, I guess it would be afternoon for us here. But um, right. maybe we'll start off with, I mean, th- this was not a surprise at all. Macron was leading in the polls uh, pretty much from the first skip and uh, and is now uh, the president-elect at this point. Uh, is there anyone who's surprised other, other than the Le Pen group? Yeah, I think so. Not even Le Pen is uh, too surprised about the outcome. Uh, this was very much uh, in the line of uh, French uh, experiences in the past. Uh, the second round always uh, uh, is uh, happening in a way that uh, the voters uh, rethink their, their choices from the first round and they definitely, uh, in the majority, want to avoid a kind of radicalization, in this case, a radicalization to the right. So in this regard, not really a surprise. Is Le Pen too far right for French uh, for the French people? Obviously, I mean, the, the results kind of bear that. Is she too far to the right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, the Front National is a very interesting kind of a party, and Marine Le Pen obviously uh, changed a lot over a couple of years. It's a party founded by her father, mm-hmm. and at the time it was a very anti-Semitic, anti-Islam, uh, a very right-wing, extreme right-wing party. Uh, Marine Le Pen, the daughter, uh, made some kind of changes, a kind of modernization. So the program actually is catering uh, those ones on the very extreme right, but also those ones who are very unhappy and concerned about the effects of globalization. So she has a very kind of uh, traditional left-wing economic policy program, but a program that actually comes with a, a very strong dose of economic nationalism, something we uh, have learned from uh, our neighbor in the South, uh, where economic, economic nationalism also is uh, the core of the strategy. So it's a very interesting kind of mixture of various elements. And they have not been accepted by majority of those ones who actually voted. But you made a right point in your introduction. Uh, the really concern is uh, twofold. Number one, a relatively high rate of abstention. Second, those kind of uh, ballots that have been made uh, invalid. And uh, the overall relatively low uh, rate of uh, participation. So uh, 
Now, the challenge will be for Macron in uh, coming pretty soon, in June, when the National Assembly elections are coming up. He needs a majority in the parliament. And due to the fact that he has not really a party, this will be also a very kind of uh, steep task for him to achieve this without a majority in the National Assembly. Uh, all of his program elements will not happen at all. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the voter turnout. Actually, 74.6% uh, came out to vote, the, the lowest for a French presidential runoff in 48 years. So, I mean, really, the voters said, uh, w- either we don't like either of these, these two or we're not going to vote at all. But let me ask you this. Was this landslide victory for Emmanuel Macron uh, more along the lines of voters saying, yes, we believe in what he has uh, and his future for this country, or was it a vote against Le Pen, or was there a bit of both in there? Yeah, I mean, if, if definitely I would read it in a way that a majority of the voters uh, support a very kind of strong pro-European perspective. This means different to uh, Le Pen. It means a more welcoming perspective in terms of integration of, of uh, immigrants. So uh, Macron was very, very strict on this one, also totally opposing the views of Le Pen. So I would say the positive way is it was a a strong signal for a more liberal, open France. But having said that, at the same time, a very, very strong number of voters from various camps obviously don't like uh, what uh, Macron wants to accomplish. And uh, we know the French experience. Uh, from after June, uh, June elections, there will be a lot of actors, trade unions, farmers, business lobbyists. A lot of those actors, not only will they try to oppose most of the policies of Macron, they also have the power, actually, the power on the street to block all kinds of reforms. That's the fate of France of the last uh, 20 years or so. You know, we have to be aware, France is a, overall a pretty strong economy. Labor productivity is as high as in Germany. Uh, they have very, very strong sectors. But then it's a much too strong of a state. Uh, the overall uh, state share in uh, GDP is 57%, one of the highest in the OECD world. There it needs uh, strong reforms, but those reforms need support. And whether Macron has all the kind of social support with various actors, this will, uh, he will have to demonstrate. We're chatting with uh, Kurt Hubner, Jean Monnet Chair for the European Integration and Global Political Economy Institute for European Studies here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Um, does the election of Macron, uh, what does it mean for the future of France? We know that if Le Pen got in, that it would be a much different uh, society or, or rules and regulations than we see now. But what's the go-forward plan? What can we see the former socialist economy minister and one-time banker do for this country? Yeah, I mean, uh, he promised promised a couple of so-called supply-side reforms, means some kind of relaxation of very harsh labor laws. Uh, I wouldn't say those are very neoliberal reforms. Those would be a kind of uh, reform that would bring France, let us say, closer uh, to the German case, where we also have very, very strong trade unions, but the trade unions in Germany are different than the ones in France. So there will be a couple of those kind of reforms, but the main task actually will be uh, to increase economic growth. And that's what this program is all about. Whether he can achieve this, given the fact that France already is very close always to violate stability and growth pact criteria in the eurozone means uh, the, the public de- deficit uh, in the budget is usually higher or very close to 3%. But in order to stimulate growth, 
he would need a strong push in this regard, and this would need actually some support on the side of Germany. So the way I see it, given the fact that we have elections in Germany coming out in September, uh, the next couple of months, he will have to demonstrate the willingness and the ability to make reforms in the domestic area. And if this, if he will succeed with this kind of reforms, then maybe there's a chance that he gets some support uh, on the Eurozone criteria to have a kind of more relaxed way and to get external uh, support for the kind of growth strategy he proposes. So it's a kind of domestic international strategy, and he, he needs support from all sides to be successful. You mentioned Germany. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel congratulating Macron today, as did uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking with uh, Macron to congratulate him on the election. What does Macron's victory mean for Canada and its trade agreement with the, the EU? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. I think so. Maybe, I hope so, at least. It was in, it was in the in the heat of the campaign. And Macron was mentioning if he would be elected as a president, what now happened, he will try to reopen negotiations about CETA. So I think so. This was more a kind of uh, you know, uh, servicing the, the, the kind of interest of some sectors she needs to support for. I don't think so. This will be really something he will be successful in, in, in following through. But it was, indicates a bit that uh, he is not a kind of a very easy politician, even he's very young and maybe some are thinking a bit like Trudeau, not so experienced, but he will have a very strong uh, army of advisors and he will recruit experienced politicians. So he will be somebody, I think so, who will uh, make a pretty strong negotiator on the international level. At the same time, it's pretty clear uh, Trudeau as well as Merkel and some others are relieved that uh, France is not running towards this kind of uh, uh, backpipers, uh, those kind of politicians who are in favor of populist kind of policies who would go nowhere. So it's a kind of confirmation that liberal democratic values are still alive. And that's a good message coming from France. Kurt, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Same for you. Thanks so much. Bye now. Kurt Hubner, uh, Jean Monnet Chair for European Integration and Global Political Economy with the Institute for European Studies at the UBC, University British Columbia. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Well, here to talk about all this rain and where it went and, and the impact of it is Brian Hughes, Manager of Capital Rehabilitation and Technical Operations with the City of Hamilton, joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Brian, how are you? Not bad, thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us. So what does it look like out there right now, beyond being a sunny day? I mean, you're probably seeing some pretty horrific things. Uh, We we had uh, difficult times the last uh, last number of days. Uh, Things are um, starting to dry out a little bit. Uh, I've been concentrating more on uh, work on the... Uh, escarpments, the Sherman Axis and the Kenilworth, uh, also uh, another project we have, um, uh, we're checking on one on uh, York Road where we've got the road closed at the moment. So let's start with the Kenilworth Axis. I know there was a mudslide Friday at the Hairpin. Uh, what happened there and how significant was it? The uh, What happened was uh, one of our patrols noticed that the, there was a mudslide uh, material just um, uh, slid down the uh, slid down the escarpment and uh, filled the uh, the area behind the barrier wall. There's normally we we have um, a, like a ditch area or a containment area for uh, material coming down. Unfortunately, recently we had been through there to clean that out, so there was some 
there was some space there for material, but it still got filled up and started to uh, overflow onto the road. Uh, that the concern for us was any more coming down would go straight. The, the containment area was full in that area, and the material would be straight onto the road. Uh, so obviously you caught it as uh, that space, as you said, was filling up. Uh, has that space been uh, evacuated? Has all that mud, all that gunk been brought out? We brought a contractor in there on Friday evening. He worked uh, late into the night and uh, cleaned out the material. And then we, we monitored the area on Saturday just to, because everything was saturated, we were afraid there may be some other um, some other movement on the escarpment. So we were monitoring that on Saturday. We didn't want to open the road again. And uh, there is a section, uh, the connection between the Sherman and uh, Kenilworth that we have, uh, we've kept that closed because there is... Uh, there's an area there we have some concerns. We want to get a contractor in there to remove um, a rock that is perched fairly high up. So the, the fear is that rock could uh, could be moved and, and tumble down? Yes. Uh, are these traditional problem spots or, or you know, in, in times of, you know, heavy downpours or consistent rain, are you and your team looking at these specific spots because they traditionally give us trouble? On the Kenilworth there, there have been uh, instances over the last number of years, similar uh, similar locations. We have looked back to see if uh, if the locations are are uh, similar, and, and we are looking at the same spots all the time. Uh, you mentioned York Road in Dundas. That has been uh, closed uh, now for, for a few days now as you are assessing the condition of a damaged culvert and embankment. Talk to us about that. What's happening? We, uh, we noticed that there was... Um, there was a problem at, uh, at a culvert, again, uh, with our uh, crews uh, checking out these locations. They noticed there was a bit of a sinkhole uh, on the embankment behind uh, a concrete barrier wall. Uh, we checked that out. Uh, that's when we closed the road. There was um, there was fear that the, the sinkhole would open up some more and uh, take a portion of the road with it. So we closed the road. We brought a contractor out there last Friday to see what we could do, and it was... Um, Everything was just too wet. He could not get uh, any equipment in there, so he brought his equipment on the weekend. And this morning, he started um, he started removing the the damaged culvert, and we've started uh, doing some investigation into the embankment uh, to see uh, whether we can um, do a repair there and get the road back open, or if it has to be more extensive work. And unfortunately, we're we're still in that investigation right now, so we we can't really answer which way we're going yet. Depending on which way you do go, is there an estimated time of revival, if I can put it that way, for York Road? If it's if it's a repair, it would be the matter of a few days. If it's um, if it's a replacement, then it would be uh, in the order of weeks. We're chatting with uh, Brian Hughes, a manager of Capital Rehabilitation and Technical Operations uh, with the City of Hamilton here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Uh, we mentioned those um, uh, three key roads, Kenilworth Access, the Sherman Access, York Road in Dundas. We also have all sports fields in Hamilton that are waterlogged. Uh, uh, Waterfront Trail has been impacted by some flood uh, flooding and, and high uh, water levels. Uh, various areas of the city have been greatly impacted uh, it, can can you have imagined this type of impact when this storm system was passing through? Um, no, uh, we were just after the uh, the previous storm, um, 
a week earlier we had intense rainfall uh, that caused uh, major problems in this uh, last few days uh, it's just one on top of the other the ground is saturated it just makes uh, makes life very difficult to uh, to get control of it is this uh, obviously mother nature is impossible to predict or at least at the best of times but is this preventable can we be doing other things some mitigating measures to prevent this type of flooding or is it just bound to happen Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, it, it's very hard it, with the intensity of the rainfall. It's very hard to deal with that. Uh, and when you combine that with the, the high levels in uh, Lake Ontario, it, uh, it, it just adds to the, the problem. So it, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with. Certainly those along the beach strip are uh, are dealing with, um, you know, the, the unpleasant situation of having to bail water out of their basements because of, well, the heavy rain, uh, the consistent rain over the past week, the high water levels uh, on Lake Ontario as well. Uh, is is any of, of your team or, or city employees out there helping and assessing what's happening out there? Well, the, the city is out there. We, we have... Um both our our group from uh, roads operations is out there on a regular basis. We're we're pumping uh, in areas where we can. We're uh, we've been trying to clean out catch basins. Uh, we're working closely with our uh, our associates in Hamilton Water who are checking on sewer systems. So there, there's a lot of activity out there. There's uh, not a lot of um, there's not a lot that can be done in some areas, but uh, we're, we're trying to do the best we can. Interesting on how all of this is kind of uh, uh, launching us into emergency preparedness week this week, uh, and, and which brings the question, are, are we prepared for these kind of emergencies? I, I think uh, overall, I, I think we, we seem to be doing, uh, just comparing uh, the city with uh, other locations, especially when you look up around um, the the impact of the storm in Quebec, I think we we've been uh, handling things pretty well. When you, you mentioned Quebec, I was just going to ask you about that. You know, Gatineau and Montreal and even Ottawa. You know, some some uh, you talk about flooding. I mean, now we're getting into the extreme type of flooding where you know uh, water is well past the knees and into the waste area. Do communities share information? When I mean, when you're looking at what's happening in Montreal or Gatineau. Uh, is there a conversation between communities to say, "Hey, this happened, and this is what we did," and and, and have that uh, that that knowledge shared? It it, it would be there are um, there are many uh, um, opportunities for engineers to get together and um, and review what has happened in in other locations and see try and get the lessons learned, see what you can do, and then it, it that transforms back into. Uh, the development of um, new areas within the city uh, and and other cities as well, where you can develop your standards to try and deal with those uh, with those possible extreme situations. And just uh, one final question, just back to the Sherman Access uh, uh, Rock situation. Um, do we have an ETA on when that will be resolved? Uh, not yet. We we have been in touch with our contractor to get up there to get this work done. We're just waiting for a call back. Uh, it, they were uh, we couldn't send them up there on the weekends. Uh, we we have a contractor that will go up on the escarpment and um, and remove any loose rocks and that. It was just too wet for the contractor to safely go up and, and do any work there. How big is the rock that you're concerned about? Um. Oh. 
don't know exactly the size. It's just <laughs> uh, looking at it from the roadway. It is uh, it's a substantial size. If it came down and bounced on the road, it would uh, it would do some it would damage. Some damage, which is why we want to keep that section closed. Yeah. Any other worrisome spots in and around the city that you're keeping an eye on? Um, worrisome. Uh, there's uh, nothing that. Um, uh, outside of those areas, I, I think you, I think you've covered the, the main uh, problem areas for us right now. We, we have uh, a number of areas that we always check on. In as we're getting a storm coming through, we have uh, our work crews are out there checking on uh, how catch basins and um, uh, sewer inlets are are working to make sure we're trying to make sure everything is clear for getting a storm through. Brian, appreciate the time. Uh, good luck uh, with the fight the rest of this week. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There's a new 10-page report that is uh, encouraging Canadian doctors to try uh, alternative treatments for patients with chronic non-cancer pain and avoid prescribing opioids. It's uh, the latest effort to tackle the opioid crisis that is uh, sweeping the nation and that has seen overdoses claim an estimated 2,000 lives in 2015 and even more last year. And here to shed a little more information on this topic is Jason Bussa, Principal Investigator for the Opioid Guideline Development and Associate Professor of Anesthesia at McMaster University. Jason, how are you? Very good. Nice to be on with you today. Thanks for joining us today. So maybe take us through this 10-page report and, and, and the aim of it. Yes, uh, the aim of this document is to update the information that was used for the 2010 guideline uh, to provide clinicians and patients with the best information possible regarding use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. So looking at what we used to have to now this report, how much different is this? Well, the original report focused a lot more on the prescribing of opioids for chronic pain and suggested a maximum dose of 200 morphine equivalents per day. Uh, We focused a lot more on when not to prescribe opioids, and when you do make a, a trial of opioids part of the program of care, we've suggested to stay below 50 morphine equivalents per day, and we've made a strong recommendation to stay below 90. So we focused a lot more on not just uh, how to prescribe, but when not to prescribe, and we've lowered the threshold dose that was recommended in 2010 quite a bit. I understand uh, the guidelines, recommendations uh, for for clinical practice have been developed by an international team of uh, clinicians, researchers, and patients uh, led by the Michael G. DeGroote National Pain Center at McMaster University and funded by Health Canada and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. A lot of hands in the pot there. Uh, Do you think you have it right? Uh, well, I, I think we've made a solid attempt. I think that we've we've got a, a document that we can defend, and if followed, is going to lead towards more evidence-based prescribing of opioids. And I'm I'm glad that you highlighted the involvement of patients. I would say, uh, from my perspective, that was one of the most important things that we did is to bring on a dedicated panel of patients living with chronic pain. Uh, or patients that had experienced opioid addiction, or in one case, uh, an individual whose son had passed away 
from use of prescription opioids in order to have their voice considered uh, at many stages during the guideline development process uh, really brought on some essential components from my perspective. Well, I applaud you and, and your team for involving patients because, you know, clinicians and researchers and, and physicians uh, from coast to coast and, and, and a whole lot beyond uh, probably have some really great ideas on how to tackle this problem. But the patients themselves, I mean, they are living the story, so to speak. So to, to glean information from them, I think was an outstanding play on your part. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that. And, and we've also made the distinction. We had areas where we had high-quality evidence to base our recommendations, and those we made strong recommendations for. But we also had areas where the evidence was lower in quality, and we've made weak recommendations. And the important distinction there is for a weak recommendation, it becomes critical to involve the patient's values and preferences when making that decision. So the patient voice was important in terms of developing the guidelines and when implementing them, in particular with the weak recommendations, it's critical that patients continue to be involved in that shared care decision-making process. So what did the patient voice say? What did you hear? Well, what we really heard from patients is they were quite concerned that there would be a one-size-fits-all approach uh, implemented on them, uh, that they were very different, their concerns were very different. Uh, patients that were uh, looking at a new trial of opioids were quite distinct from patients that had been doing well on high dose of opioids for many years. So we considered that very carefully, and we've made separate recommendations for those individuals that are coming in looking uh, at an opioids for the first time versus those patients that have been on opioids for long periods of time, maybe at a high dose. We also heard from our patients that many of them were interested in looking at exploring opportunities to reduce their dose of opioids. They, they had experienced some sedation, uh, some issues with that opioid use, but they were very, very worried about symptoms of opioid withdrawal. And everybody engaged in long-term opioid therapy will become physically dependent. And so it's important when you try to help somebody reduce their dose of opioids that you do it in an individualized fashion. And if that person has come down to a point where it becomes difficult for them to go beyond, that it's appropriate to stop there. If someone experiences an increase in pain, a serious decrease in function that lasts for a month after you've made a small reduction in their dose of opioid, it is quite reasonable to pause the taper and even to abandon the taper in some individuals. So we don't want to push everybody towards a theoretical threshold. We want to consider the individual circumstances. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Jason Bussa, Principal Investigator for the Opioid Guideline Development and Associate Professor of Anesthesia at McMaster University here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Rick in for Scott today. Uh, now these are uh, guidelines or, or recommendations. We'll go through uh, some of the recommendations in a minute. Uh, they're not regulatory requirements, though. D doctors don't necessarily have to do this, right? You're absolutely correct. Now, we have been working with medical regulators. They will be getting uh, all the information behind our guidelines, but it will be up to each province to decide how they want to encourage implementation of the guideline. Have you heard from the province of Ontario? Uh, we have been working closely with the, uh, with the medical association here, uh, with some of the other uh, professional organizations in Ontario. Uh, they have generally been enthusiastic about the new information, about the evidence we've been able to synthesize, uh, and we are working to coordinate a, a uh, public relations knowledge translation strategy 
but I don't know uh, to what degree our guideline is going to be implemented in terms of uh, activities by the regulator here. Now, the guideline does not look at opioid uh, use for acute pain nor for patients uh, with pain due to cancer or in palliative care, and there's a specific reason for that, correct? Yes. Uh, so we, we had a mandate. We had a limited uh, time period to sort of work through this. And we, we were, uh, because of that, we focused on opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. The reason why not for cancer-related pain, individuals involved in palliative care are going to have very different concerns about the impact of their treatment than patients that are not dealing with a palliative care situation. So we, we recognize those are distinct populations. We wanted to be very careful about a misapplication of our guidelines to those very different groups. Uh, in talking uh, about the patients a few minutes ago, uh, you know, they didn't want to see a one-size-fits-all kind of scenario. Uh, when looking at the uh, recommended restrictions of under 50 milligrams morphine equivalents a day for patients starting opioid therapy, and that can go up to, to 90 a day, and again, these are simply recommendations, how difficult or maybe how easy is it for a physician to say, okay, you should be at the, the 50 or the 80 or even the 90 milligram threshold? Well, I think this allows an opportunity for the conversation to happen. Mm. And with the guideline, we've provided access to the entire guideline through an online application, which includes decision aids. So if a clinician wanted to at the point of care, when sitting down with their patient, when talking about whether opioids might be an appropriate therapy for them, they can show them this material. They can demonstrate the incremental uh, improvements in pain and function and the risk that's going to occur, in particular the increase in risk as the dose goes up. So we've made a weak recommendation to stay below 50, and that information can be presented to patients at the time of that decision. We've made a strong recommendation to stay below 90, simply because the risk of, of things such as unintentional overdose starts to climb up to a point where we felt most patients would not be willing to accept that risk. Now, we did acknowledge that the data used from our evidence syntheses will talk about the average patient. And there could be individuals who would be willing to accept the risk because they've seen a partial benefit. So we've made an associated remark with that strong recommendation to stay below 90 milligrams that for individuals that appear to be an exception to this recommendation, it would be reasonable to get a second opinion from a colleague uh, and then to look at the possibility of taking them above that. But we want that to be an exception rather than the rule, and we want there to be careful consideration made before going beyond that because we know that the real risk of things such as overdose does increase beyond that point uh, to a point that we think is concerning. And again, we'll remind our listeners that the, the previous guideline, or I guess the current guideline, uh, would have been 200 milligrams morphine equivalent a day, and that can be as low as 90 or even 50. I mean, we're talking about a dramatic increase here, right? Yeah, we really are. And, and I would also uh, just highlight that observational studies done here in Ontario have shown that uh, 40% of patients prescribed long-term opioid therapy actually exceed that 200 milligram threshold. 20% exceed 400 milligrams. So you can talk about the threshold in the 2010 guideline, but it would be it would be inappropriate to think that people have been kept below that threshold. There's quite a few that have been going beyond there. And so we're going to be suggesting this new reduction. This is for new patients coming in 
for legacy patients currently at high dosing. We're suggesting bringing them down, but we really need to see uh, strategies in place to implement these guidelines because I think one of the learnings we had from 2010 is we didn't see as much change in opioid prescribing as we would have liked to see. And at the end of the day, guidelines are not self-implementing. We need to have a program in place that's going to get these recommendations into practice and measure whether we've had the impact that we would like to have. Do physicians, and I don't, I don't want to th- throw all physicians under the bus here, but do, do physicians from coast to coast, do they have to do a better job of uh, having that conversation, A, with the patient, and then determining the best course of action? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of getting that, that flash in my mind that the doctor will just say, all right, just take these, and, and you should be better in a couple of weeks. Or whatever. Is it just too easy for them to uh, you know, hand their patient opioids? Well, it, it's, a, it's a complex issue, and I think some clinicians are doing a fantastic job with it. I think some clinicians could use some help, uh, but I think that there needs to be availability of other resources. I think that, uh, you know, because opioids have been readily available and historically the risks have been uh, not, not understood to the degree that we now know they actually present, uh, so I do think that there needs to be some work helping uh, clinicians in general to have these kinds of conversations. It would be nice to provide them with more time to do it, right? A lot of the reimbursement schedules will really cap physicians at around 15 minutes for a discussion. And when you're presented with a complex patient where you really need to get into some important details, 15 minutes doesn't always do it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be recommending to patients that they pursue other types of therapies, these things need to be available. And right now, for too many patients, I'm concerned that they don't have access to sufficient non-opioid therapies. And so to your point, it becomes easy to reach for their prescription pad and to use something that is available. Uh, we're chatting with uh, Jason Buss, a principal investigator for the Opioid Guideline Development and uh, associate professor of anesthesia at uh, McMaster University here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Uh, one of the recommendations includes, um, I guess, whittling away opioids altogether for select patients. How does that work? Well, we found evidence from at least observational studies, so we don't have high-quality evidence, but we have, we have low-quality evidence that patients engaged in a formal program of tapering can often be very successful. And in particular, we had one study where the end goal was to take people off opioids altogether. Uh, now, these are individuals that had been at high doses. They weren't seeing a great deal of benefit, and there was success achieved. Now, the success achieved was in a multidisciplinary environment where there was a a complex supportive program that was provided to patients. Uh, And so we've made a very strong recommendation for patients struggling to taper. This kind of multidisciplinary care appears very promising. But we also recognize, as with non-opioid therapy, resources become an important issue. So I think for some patients, the, the tapering effort may result in a reduction of the opioid that they're currently using, and in some patients, it may result in no opioids altogether. That's going to be something that clinicians have to work on with their individual patient. And ideally, if they run into problems, uh, support from a multidisciplinary team appears to be very helpful, but that kind of intervention remains very, very determined by available resources. What kind of support has Health Canada provided? Uh, Health Canada has been uh, phenomenal as a partner to work with. They, they really have been very engaged throughout this process. Uh, they've, uh, they've had a representative that's been working with us closely as an observer uh, throughout the two-year process. Uh, they're, they're helping to get the message out. 
they've uh, they, they're they're embarking on a number of strategies to really push these messages out. So um, we found Health Canada to be a, a really outstanding partner in this effort. Now these guidelines are obviously just one piece of the puzzle. Another, I think, even greater piece would be the patients themselves and how uh, they come at this problem. Uh, how do you expect them to respond? What's the expectation there? Well, by working with the patient advisory committee that we have been from the start of this guideline, um, what I can tell you is that the majority of people that were involved in the guideline felt very comfortable uh, with the final product. They were very happy to have their name associated with it. I would say the, the concerns that some had is that the recommendations may be misapplied. Uh, and in particular, that a legacy patient who's been doing quite well at, at maybe a dose of opioids higher than 90 is all of a sudden going to be told by their prescriber the next day, uh, sorry, I've got to take you down to 50 now, um, without recognizing that that recommendation is not uh, meant to apply to legacy patients. So I think that from what we heard from the patients we dealt with, there was general satisfaction with this document. We've come up with the recommendations where their concern lie, uh, where their concern lays, is if some of these recommendations are misapplied to uh, to patients out there. And, and that would force those quote unquote legacy patients to look elsewhere for opioids, correct? Well, this is this is what we're really concerned about. Yeah. I mean, in particular, when we were talking to folks out in uh, British Columbia, which seems to be the epicenter of of illicit fentanyl and even more dangerous agents such as carfentanyl, uh, we did hear this concern loud and clear. If patients uh, are uh, if, if their access to prescription opioids is taken away, if they are struggling with symptoms of withdrawal or unmanaged pain, that there is the potential for them to seek out opioids from illicit sources. And I, we are very concerned that that would put people in a much more dangerous position than they would otherwise be at by maintaining their prescription opioids. So we're, we've, we've put out a number of comments in the guideline to prevent that scenario from occurring uh, and it's a message that I'm, I'm, I'm quite convinced we need to keep getting out there. And, and that, that scenario, um, not, I mean, that whole can of worms is already open. It, it, it's already been, uh, you know, a factor in the lives of so many Canadians and their families. And, and now we're involving uh, a whole lot more other than just the healthcare silo, correct? Yes. You're, I mean, you're, you're talking about the sort of contribution that illicit fentanyl or illicit opioids in general has made to the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, is, it, it is a critical issue. It's one that our guideline does not focus on directly. As I said, the one place where there could be an intersection is we do not want to push people into a situation where they feel compelled to look at illicit opioids. But clearly, and in particular on the, uh, on the West Coast, uh, uh, strategies around dealing with the illicit opioid epidemic are, are uh, extremely critical. Is there a guesstimate, maybe even here in Ontario, on how many people are going to be affected by these new guidelines or could potentially be affected by these new guidelines? I mean, we're talking about millions of people, right? We are talking about millions. I think the current estimates are around one in five Canadians are dealing with chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, estimates for patients currently on long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain uh, range anywhere from half a million to a million. Uh, so we are talking millions of people would be affected by this kind of information. And, and that's why we had to be so careful to make sure that we had multiple voices involved. We had a clear focus on the evidence. And where we didn't have high-quality evidence, we were transparent about that. And we've made what I'm calling weak recommendations, which then need to be determined in terms of you know, patients' values and preferences. So it's a complicated issue affecting millions of Canadians, 
uh, and it's really important that we try to get it right. Do you think we'll see um, a relatively quick impact with these recommendations? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Uh, it's, It's hard for me to say, but I think that there is a great deal of attention on this issue. I think that there's a, a great deal of willingness right now to sort of look to see how we can try to improve practices. It, not a day goes by, it seems, you can't pick up a newspaper or turn on the radio and not hear about important ways that opioids have affected people in, in, in an adverse way. So I think that the, the environment is primed for change. I'm hopeful that these guidelines are going to be uh, seen as a useful contribution to the debate, and our group is certainly committed to working with our various partners out there uh, to get this message out and to uh, put these recommendations into practice. Well, this is an issue that is uh, definitely important enough to follow up uh, perhaps in a matter of months or even a year to say, hey, Jason, how, uh, how are we looking? And maybe we'll do so uh, not in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I'd be delighted to do so, and uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jason. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Jason Bussa, Principal Investigator for the Opioid Guideline Development and Associate Professor of Anesthesia at uh, McMaster University, talking to us about this 10-page report that is encouraging uh, Canadian doctors to try alternative treatments for patients with chronic non-cancer pain and avoid prescribing opioids. It is uh, no doubt about it, the latest effort to uh, tackle the opioid crisis that is sweeping Canada, that has seen overdoses uh, claim an estimated 2,000 lives in 2015 and even more in 2016. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.